This is TM Camp, and you're listening to the podcast edition of my novel, Assam and Darjeeling. Book Two The Winter Palace. Chapter One Tea and Statues. Please call me Winterly, the Queen told them. That way we can be friends. G was happy to agree. Since meeting the woman, there was nothing she wanted more than to be the Queen, Winterly's friend. Her brother, on the other hand, was less impressed. With only her voice to go on, his imagination had to supply the rest. For all he knew, the more charming the Queen, the more evil she was likely to turn out to be. It's not like this had never happened before. He'd read the stories. He knew how things worked. But for his blindness, he would have kept one eye out for the signs. Teeth that were slightly too sharp. Smiles that were slightly too broad. Hair that was just this side of black as night. Skin that was almost lunar in its pale, unearthly beauty. Eyes that flashed imperiously, possibly turning red when her guard was down. He knew what to look for. As it was, he only had his hearing to guide him. He paid close attention to the queen's words, looking for anything that might even remotely hint at a hidden, darker meaning. The wind didn't help, whipping past his head and making it difficult to hear anything. And it was cold. They were halfway up the hill and his ears were already starting to ache. He was tired and cold, and he was blind. He felt like a ghost, or perhaps the opposite of one. He was alive, a living, breathing soul, lost and wandering among the dead. He was subject to the rules and cautions of a world to which he did not belong, a world he could not escape. He was trapped within the boundaries of a place that he could neither see, escape, nor understand. His sister, however, was having a lovely time. She helped him through the snow as best she could, paying more attention to the queen's friendly chatter than her brother's shambling, sliding steps. The low rise of the hill was blanketed in snow inches deep. In spring it might have been a beautiful, lush garden, but there was nothing now save for the lifeless, chill reminders of death all around them. Here and there, G saw small shrubs and trees, half-buried, stripped bare by the teeth of winter, the skeletal remains left behind after the long, cold feast. Nothing stirred, nothing moved but the three of them and the spinning, wind-blown snow. No, G thought. There was someone out there among the dead trees. It was a man, standing below one of the trees with his arm outstretched as though straining to pick a piece of fruit. But the branch above him was bare. He wore what appeared to be overalls and a straw hat. The man was motionless. G wondered if he had frozen to death. Then she realized it wasn't a man at all. It was a statue. The queen stopped for a moment, gazing up the slope. The palace stood dark against the pale sky, looming over them like a shadow. Here and there a light burned, 
but even if every window had been lit up, the gray, squat majesty of the place would have swallowed it all like a sullen child at a birthday party, refusing to be taken in by all the joy. It reminded G of something, a vague memory that took a moment to locate. Then she had it. A few years back, her grandmother had passed away, and at the funeral, G had seen little stone houses scattered throughout the graveyard. She'd been younger then, and she asked her brother why dead people needed playhouses. He, of course, laughed at her, and then he set her straight. Walking through the snow towards the palace, G tried to bring to mind what he had called them. Mausoleums, she said as she found the word. The queen stopped and looked at her. There was an old hurt in her eyes, and G knew that she was the one who had awakened it. I'm sorry, she said quietly. The queen nodded, more to herself than the girl, and then she turned and led them up a series of stone steps towards the palace. At the top, they passed across a flagstone patio under the bored and remote gaze of the dark windows. There were two massive doors of dark wood flanked on either side by stone flower pots. Inside them, dried twigs poked up through the snow. As they approached, the doors opened and they followed the queen inside. They were in a massive entry hall hung from floor to ceiling with tapestries and paintings. Gee stared up at the distant vaulted roof above and allowed one small awestruck wow to escape. And yet, for all its beauty, she couldn't help but shiver. Unlike the bitter winter cold outside, the chill of the palace was unnatural and overwhelming. Outside it had been cold, but it was a natural thing, no matter how bitter the weather. Even in the worst of winter, there is a promise that spring will one day arrive. The palace was beautiful, to be sure, but as heartless and dead as a mausoleum, and nothing could press back against the emotional chill seeping from every corner of the place. Not that someone hadn't tried. There were flowers everywhere, vases exploding in color, bowls of water swimming with lilies and roses, potted plants in every corner. But all of the flowers in nature couldn't change the truth. This was a sad place, a dead and lifeless house. The flowers were leftovers from the funeral. With the great doors closed behind them, both children reflexively stamped their feet that knocked the snow off of their boots. Gee stopped quickly and glanced to the queen to see if she minded. The woman simply smiled, unbuttoning her long, shimmering coat. Underneath, she wore a dark, elegant skirt and sweater the color of fresh coffee. There was a statue standing to one side of the door, a perfectly ordinary-looking man in a perfectly ordinary-looking suit, looking perfectly bored. As statues go, the likeness was excellent. If G hadn't already seen the statue in the snow outside, she might have taken the one in here for a real person. Also, he was stone gray from top to bottom. Then the statue raised its arm and took the queen's coat in a movement so fluid and natural that G almost missed it. Then it froze in place once more. The queen, apparently not noticing G's astonishment, turned to the children. Now, do you want to hold on to your coats, or shall we hang them up? Yes, please, 
G answered, still staring at the statue. The queen smiled. Yes, please, you want to hold on to them, or yes, please, you want to be rescued from their puffy, down-filled clutches. Ow! Assam squeezed G's arm before she could answer. I'd like to hold on to mine, thank you, your majesty, he said. And you probably should as well, he told his sister. You know how you forget things. I don't, she said, despite the fact that since the beginning of the school year she'd already gone through two scarves, one pair of boots, and countless sets of gloves and mittens. She took off her coat and held it out, watching with amazement as the statue moved and shifted. She tugged at her brother's sleeve. Come on, it's too hot for all that junk. She wanted to see the statue in action again. I'm fine, he said, blinking. You're not, she told him. You're practically sweating to death in it. I am not, Assam wiped his forehead. Suit yourself, she shrugged. She considered taking off her snow pants and boots, but couldn't think of a dignified way to go about it. The queen smiled. Well then, how does a nice hot cup of tea sound? Tea, they both admitted, sounded wonderful. Excellent! The queen led them off through the palace. As they went along, G counted the statues. They were scattered everywhere. Their dull, flat eyes stared back at her from every corner, their pale faces almost lifelike enough to pass for real. They had a patient, waiting quality to them. In one corner of the room, G saw a statue of a woman posed over a table with a rag in her hand. As they passed by, she could see that one side of the table was dull, and the other gleamed as though the statue had been frozen halfway through the job of polishing it. G wondered over those gray, ghost-like figures. She thought of asking her brother about them, but decided against it. He could have told her a lot from the old stories about statues, had she'd asked. Not that G would have listened to him. When they had first met the queen, she'd been wearing that long, beautiful coat with the dark skirt and sweater underneath. And she'd been wearing boots, G noted, black ones that went up to her knee. G had been considerably impressed by those boots, so she was surprised to see that somehow along the way they had vanished. Well, they hadn't vanished. The queen wasn't barefoot. The boots had somehow been replaced by patent leather Mary Janes, and the dark brown sweater and skirt had inexplicably changed as well. Now the queen was wearing a pair of gray pants and a white cotton shirt. G had no idea how the queen had managed to change clothes, but she thought the new outfit looked adorable. Even though G was a tomboy at heart, she had a soft spot for patent leather. They passed on through a large drawing room, a statue posed by the mantel, feather duster in hand. On the other side of the room, the queen held the door open for them, and the children passed through. As the queen followed, G looked back and almost fell on the floor. The queen's gray pants and white shirt had suddenly and magically transformed into a black velvet dress with a white sash at the waist. The queen didn't appear to notice that her wardrobe had changed. G wondered if she could even control it. As the queen walked past, the dress shimmered, much like the swans on the river had shimmered, changing into a black knit top and a pair of very leather pants. 
Excuse me, Assam said. He'd been quiet for some time, allowing his sister to lead him along. The tone in his voice told G that he was getting a little sick of following her around like a trained puppy. Yes? The queen stopped and looked back at him. Where are you taking us? There was a faint whine in his voice, however polite. His sister squeezed his hand to shut him up. Ow, he said. I mean, could you please tell us where we're going? I thought that we might have our tea in the solarium, the queen said. The rest of the palace is so cold and stuffy. Well, is it much farther? His question wandered on the borderlands of polite, but the queen didn't seem to mind. Not very far, she told him with a smile. She reached out her hand and opened a nearby door, stepping back to let them pass through. When the queen had first mentioned having tea, she imagined her mother sitting with a cup of coffee and a newspaper in the little nook off the kitchen back home. The word solarium had meant nothing to her when she'd first heard it. Stepping through the doorway, she realized that whatever it meant, it probably had nothing to do with newspapers and old chipped cups. Inside, the warm air shimmered with heat and color. Butterflies flitted here and there, their color lost among the dazzle of the flowers. Gangs of songbirds twittered and scolded among the trees and shrubbery. Above them, the sun beat down through a faceted ceiling of glass panels. Gee looked up into the golden light, wondering how the weather outside could have changed so quickly. It was like being in a garden, an exceptionally beautiful and large garden that someone had somehow set inside a diamond and then set that diamond inside the sun. The queen closed the door behind them. And here we are, she said as she passed in a completely new outfit, a light summer dress of yellow so pale that it almost looked white. She led them along a little stone path through the garden. They came to a small bridge that crossed over a narrow brook. Iridescent fish swam through the water below, sleepy and content. Over the bridge was a little clearing in which a small white wrought iron table waited for them. They had obviously been expected. There were three chairs and the table was laid with white china and linen napkins. To one side, another statue stood patiently next to a small white cart holding a silver tea service. As they approached, the statue moved to pull a chair out for the queen. Murmuring her thanks, she sat down. Gee followed suit, pulling out the heavy chair for herself. She looked across the table at the queen, who nodded quietly to a psalm still standing nearby, uncertain and blind. Sorry, she said. She hopped up and guided him to his seat. She sat down again and unfolded her napkin. The cup and saucer in front of her were bone white, a thin silver band around the rim shining brightly in the sun. There was a loaf of bread on a silver tray, flanked by two tall glass bottles stoppered with silver spouts. One of the bottles was filled with a bright green fluid, the other with a liquid so dark it was almost black. She looked up to see that the queen was watching her, an amused smile playing at the corners of her mouth. The queen nodded to the statue, saying, I think we're ready now, Robert. Please get us started, and then you can leave us to fend for ourselves. 
The statue shifted to life immediately, transferring the tea service to the table with a quick, almost mechanical efficiency. With a slight bow to the queen, the statue wheeled the cart away over the bridge and out of sight. Once he had gone, the queen lifted the teapot and, glancing from one child to the other, asked, Well, should I be mother? Um, G wasn't quite certain what to say, a sudden memory of their mom looking back between the car seats flickering in her mind. Yes, please, your majesty, her brother answered for both of them. Please, the queen told them, call me Winterly. That way we can be friends. Winterly. The name was the sound of tea being poured into a bone-white china cup. Like gentle laughter. It was perfect. She was perfect. G had lost track of how many times her clothes had shimmered and shifted, how many wonderful things she had said, how many kind looks she had given them, how many times she had laughed. If Winterly was a witch, G decided, then she was doomed. Assam could not be so easily won. His blindness made him immune to the dazzle of the queen's shifting wardrobe and her friendly smiles, but her voice, despite her name, was warm and kind. He found himself wondering about her. What did she look like? Was she pretty? Was she old or young? And how young exactly? As she was pouring the tea, the queen said, Now, who are you and what are you called? G glanced to her brother and then back to Winterly. The queen set the teapot down. Don't worry, there is no harm here in this house, not for you. I only want to know where you are going and how I can help. Now, she said, lifting a small silver tray, milk or lemon? With no idea which was better, G said, I would like milk, please, and my name is... But her brother coughed, interrupting her. She glared at him. You can call me G, and I'm not stupid or anything, honestly. This last part was said under her breath for her brother's benefit. The queen poured a small amount of milk into the girl's cup, a little storm cloud drifting at the bottom of the tea. I bet you're clever, Winterly said, and I can't tell you how glad I am to meet you. I know people say you should put it in first, but I always forget. Put what in first? The milk, G, so it doesn't get scalded. Winterly turned to the boy. And for you? Assam said nothing for a long moment. Then he opened his eyes. You can call me Assam, he said quietly, like a child forced to share his toys on Christmas morning. Winterly nodded. If she noticed anything unusual about his milky eyes, she didn't show it. And so I shall. Slowly, he closed his eyes again. Milk or lemon? the queen asked brightly. Neither, thank you. Assam's hands drifted towards the tabletop, pale fingers exploring first the edge of the saucer before coming to rest lightly on the rim of the cup. Winterly lifted a silver bowl. Sugar? Yes, please. She obliged, and he took a sip. The tea was very sweet, 
and in his mind he imagined it was the color of rain against the summer sky. He knew it wasn't, of course. He'd seen tea before, but this tasted different somehow. He could taste the color of it. The queen's voice was the same color of the tea in his mind. In addition to the tea, there were sandwiches. Some kind of taupe paste smeared in between slices of soft bread with the crust cut off. Both of the children politely accepted one, although neither of them felt compelled to finish it, despite the fact that they hadn't eaten anything since the diner. G thought the stuff between the bread smelled like cat food, but she drank several cups of tea. She was utterly enchanted with the simple elegance of the cups and the little pitcher of milk. She'd never seen sugar cubes before either, and she adored the little tongs shaped like bird's claws that the queen used to pick them up. Her brother was enjoying himself somewhat less. The tea was hot and difficult to drink given his situation. He had to guide the cup carefully to his lip with both hands, which felt childish and undignified, so he gave up on the tea after the first few sips. He sat back and lifted his face to the warmth beaming down from above. He wondered where it was coming from. He could see nothing, no faint glow of any kind, it was not like having his eyes closed. No, you could still see light and dark through your eyelids. No, this was like someone had painted over his eyes. And yet, he felt safe. At least, this was the safest he'd felt since the car accident. He took up his cup again, raising it carefully to his lips. He could feel their eyes on him. He could feel them thinking. Assam wondered if all blind people felt this way, and if they did, how they could stand to be around people at all. He'd rather be alone than endure the constant feeling of exposure, of being watched, that razor-thin, edge self-consciousness cutting through everything he did. His sister tapped his foot under the table, and, startled, he set his teacup down with a nervous rattle. The queen had asked him something when he'd been lost in his thoughts. I'm sorry, he said, worrying that he spilled his tea. What did you say? The queen said, Will you tell me what happened to your eyes? Why? I should like to know. Why? he asked again. She felt kind to him, but he didn't know how far that feeling, or she, could be trusted. I should like to help, she answered, if I can. Maybe they've always been like this, Assam replied. Maybe I was born this way. Some people are, you know. He could feel his sister's foot tapping out a silent scolding on his own under the table. He shifted away from her, ignoring the wave of frustration pouring off of her. Some are, the queen admitted, but you weren't. You lost your sight or it was taken from you, and recently, as far as I can tell. I'd like to know how that happened, and I'd like to help. Assam nearly asked her why again, but he didn't. His wariness sounded sullen and rude, even to his ears. He'd been raised to be more respectful than that, and his suspicion was getting tipped off balance by the possibility that she might actually be able to help him. What would you like to know? 
Well, I know what to call both of you, so perhaps you could tell me just a little bit more. Like what? G chimed in. Only what you need to, the queen said. She laid her hand on Assam's and he flinched. I know you're being careful and I understand. Believe me, if you had anything to fear from me, well, you would know it by now. Assam nodded. May I have another cup of tea, please? Of course. While the queen was pouring, he had time to think. She seemed kind, and he wanted to trust her, but he had to admit that she had a point. Of course, the fox had said something very similar. He decided to trust her, but he would be careful. He took a breath, like someone getting ready to jump into water without knowing how cold or how deep it was. We're looking for our mom, his sister said, running all over his careful plans. Julia, Assam groaned. He would have glared at her but for his blindness. I was trying to be careful. Way to go telling her my name then, she snapped. That was pretty careful. He put his head down on the table. He simply couldn't stand the weight of it any longer. And he wept. All the worries and fear and sadness and longing for his mother came pouring out of him in great gasping sobs. The queen got up and knelt next to his chair. She didn't speak or try to calm him down. She just laid her head on his shoulder and ran her fingertips lightly across his back, back and forth. It was exactly the right thing to do. Eventually, his sobs tapered off and he lifted his head again. He made an effort to clean himself up without spoiling the handkerchief that the queen pressed between his hands. Once he had gotten himself under control, the queen patted his arm and went back to her chair. As she sat down, she glanced to G, and a small understanding passed between them. This is a good boy, and he needs us right now, the queen's look seemed to tell her, silently. So we'll do anything we can for him, won't we? G nodded at her and looked at her brother. He was staring down at his hands, fingers wound through the wrought iron curlicues of the table. So, the queen said quietly, you're not meant to be here then. Assam shook his head, a faint shadow of worry crossing his face. They were trespassers in this place. Maybe with all of the danger, they were in trouble too. The queen nodded to herself. I thought as much, but you can never tell for sure. It's always better to ask. Neither of the children said anything. Tell me what happened to your eyes, the queen asked again, pouring herself another cup of tea. Milk, she noted to herself. No sugar. Assam took a breath. He was going to have to answer her questions now. He couldn't very well ask for more tea. How much, he asked quietly, how much do you know about foxes? A bit, the queen admitted. Not much. Well, this, Assam passed his hand in front of his eyes. This happened because of a fox. And because I was stupid. I was stupid too, G said, not wanting to be left out. 
The queen leaned back in her chair and sipped her tea. A shimmering wave passed over her as her clothes changed into a deep burgundy coat with a fur collar. Start at the beginning, she said. Don't leave anything out. They spoke in turns, managing as best they could to remember what had happened. The queen listened quietly, sharing her attention between them and smiling patiently when they quibbled over details. They told her about the accident, about awakening by the side of the road and the long walk to the hospital. G tried to describe their mother lying there, but couldn't get the words out. Assam picked up the story for her and told of the bell and the stairs, of their trip down the river to Moontown, and of the witch in her garden. G took over, telling of her time in the diner, of Edgar's offer and Sarah's advice. I know the place you mean, Winterly said, but I don't think I've met her. She knew you, G said. She told me you were in love. Winterly cocked her head to one side, eyes twinkling. Really? We're in love? I've never even met her. No, she said you fell in love with someone, someone else, not her. Ah, the queen closed her eyes for a moment. Assam wrinkled his brow. There was a faint peal of sadness that rang from her. He felt it. When Winterly opened her eyes again, the twinkle that had been there was gone. That's true, she admitted. I did. Anyways, Assam said, Sarah has a boyfriend. His name is Seth. How do you know? G asked. Assam shrugged. I met him. You met her boyfriend? G didn't bother to keep the jealousy out of her voice. He nodded. What did he look like? She asked. Was he cute? Assam shrugged. Do you like snakes? Ew, G recoiled. The queen leaned in. Okay, you know what? I think you should tell me more about this Edgar character. G did her best to fill in what she knew about the boy, his odd quirks and the offer to help them. The queen nodded. And what else? G thought for a moment. He drives. He has a car with a lot of books in the back. Books? Assam asked. He hadn't heard this part before. Yeah, like kid books from when I was in kindergarten. And he can do magic, Assam told the queen. She raised her eyebrows. Really? Yeah, he said. Real magic, like light his fingertips on fire and teleport and stuff like that. Andy drinks wine, and he's not that much older than me. G felt this was an important point. The queen was quiet for a moment. I don't know this boy, she said, but that's no surprise. It's a big place. I know the type, though. Do you know a tall man? G asked, remembering suddenly the encounter outside the diner. He has really scary eyes. The queen shook her head. You just described half the people here. Tell me more about him. She thought back, remembering as best she could. He'd been very tall, she told Winterly, taller than their father and perfectly ordinary looking. 
almost boring, was how she put it. But there was something wrong with him, she told Wonderly. Something strange and scary. The queen smiled. Strange and scary just about sums up everybody else here in one way or another, she winked. Even me. But do you know him? Assam asked. Nope, Winterly said. There's so many exiles out there, there's no way to keep track of them all. No idea who he is or why he was interested in you. But it sounds like you were right to steer clear of him. What's exile mean? G asked. The queen frowned. It means, oh, I don't know. It means someone who has been sent away from where they belong. By who? Assam asked. It depends. The queen reached for the teapot and refilled their cups. She took a sip of hers and made a face. It's gone cold. I'm sorry. She set her cup down and took a breath. Assam realized that she was doing all of these things to give herself time to think, just like he had done earlier. Sometimes, the queen said, sometimes you can exile yourself. If you find you don't belong, if there's no place for you anymore, you can end up just wandering. Is Edgar in exile? she asked. The queen shrugged again, sending a ripple down her clothes. I don't know if he is or not, she said, inspecting her sudden denim overalls and white t-shirt. He certainly sounds like one. What about the other one, the tall man, she asked. What does he want? She knew about safety and strangers from school and talks with her parents. There were men in cars who wanted to kidnap you, she knew, but she was a little unclear on the whys of it all. I don't know, Winterly said again. I don't know who he is or what he wants. I'm not sure I want us to find out either. Assam liked that, the way she said us. He liked it very much. So, what do we do now? Now, Winterly said, brightening her tone and their mood. Now we should go and take a look at seeing what we can do about those eyes of yours. Assam nodded. He had no choice now but to trust her. You have been listening to Assam and Darjeeling, written and performed by T.M. Camp. A new chapter from the book is available each week, free to download at the iTunes Store. To find out more about Assam and Darjeeling, to read my weblog, or to send me your questions and feedback, visit my website at www.tmcamp.com. I hope to hear from you. Thank you for listening. I'll talk to you soon.
This podcast was written, performed, and produced by T.M. Camp and may not be copied, distributed, transcribed, or otherwise reproduced without his express written permission. To receive permission, handwrite your request on a single sheet of paper and fold it carefully into a clean white envelope addressed to the attention of the author. Place the envelope outside the back door of your home and wait for a response. Don't worry, the foxes know where to find him.